Friends, this is the moment you've waited for. How we doing? We doing good? Grab your Bibles. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll get you a copy of God's Word to follow along. You know, we're winding down now. We're winding down this series called The Greatest Sermon. And we call it The Greatest Sermon because it was preached by the greatest preacher, Jesus Christ. And it's the Sermon on the Mount. It's been a great series. I hope you've enjoyed it. We have a very, very important text tonight. It is a longer text. We've got about 10 verses that we got to get through. So I am going to jump right in. So if you are there, Matthew 7, I'm just going to start by reading the first two verses, 13 and 14. So would you, would you stand with me? And let's just look at this. Because I think these two verses really help set the tone for where we're going to go in this passage today because it's an important fact that Christ establishes here. And he says in verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So right from the start, Jesus is establishing we got two gates. There's one wide, and there is one that's narrow. And this one leads to destruction, and this one leads to life. This one is very, very easy. This one, the path is very, very difficult. Through this gate, many will pass. Through this gate, very few will pass. Are you one of the many, or are you one of the few? That's the question that we start with tonight. Would you bow with me right now as we ask God's blessing on our time in the Word? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the narrow gate. We thank you that, that it exists. We thank you that it's accessible to us, God. And, and uh, I, I pray that you will guide us in our words that we, we study tonight, or t this morning, the words of Jesus Christ, God. And I just pray that though few will traverse the narrow gate, I pray that everyone in this room will choose that path. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Be seated. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is a narrow gate message. It's a narrow gate sermon. Anyone who responds to the words of Jesus, who receives the words of Jesus, who applies them, those people are choosing the narrow way. And those who do not respond to the words of Jesus and apply them, they are choosing another route. And that route can look as different from the way prescribed by Christ as possible, or it can look very, very similar. It can be as close to the path of Christ as possible without two very important things, true repentance and true faith. And so we are looking at what it means to be on this path. And Jesus, from the start, wants us to know that this path has obstacles. There's some very important obstacles that we're going to face. And Jesus says that some of those obstacles come in the form of false prophets. False prophets. Look at your text. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets. And what I want you to see today is that in your notes, false prophets are a reality. They're a reality. Jesus says, beware of false prophets. He's not using that term figuratively. He is not telling us to beware of something that does not exist. That would make him a false prophet. 
False prophets are real. They're not an urban legend. They're not Bigfoot. They're not the Loch Ness Monster. They are real flesh and blood individuals in the time of Christ and also in our day who have a false message. By definition, if you are false, that means that you look like you're true, but you are not. And Jesus is saying, there will come among you those who bear a message that is false. And there is a warning against false prophets. And that warning is based on the, on the uh, presupposition that there are some prophets who tell the truth and there are some who tell lies. And those who tell lies often disguise themselves. They hide their hostilities to the truth and to the gospel by looking just like other Christians. Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come dressed as, as, as sheep. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Ah, this is the proverbial wolf in sheep's clothing. You've heard that phrase many, many times, haven't you? Started with Christ. This is where it's first used, Okay. And he's speaking in, in, the, in the context of false prophets. Now, a few weeks ago, I was in Spain. I went to Spain. I took 20 people from this church right here, most of them young adults. And we had a great trip. It was a fantastic trip. You should be very proud of this team that went. And do you know, give glory to God, we got to present the gospel to over 1,100 people. Isn't that awesome? You know what's more awesome than that? 242 of them received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Amen. And I was so proud of our team. They started sharing their faith with people right away. They did not wait. It happened early in the week. Language was not a barrier. They didn't care. They were bold. They were brave. They got out there. And every day, you know what we did every night? We had, a, we had what we call Festival Americano. Okay? The American party, right? And we go out. And, and the stereotype that Spaniards have of Americans is that we're all cowboys. And so we'd wear the cowboy hats. We totally played into the stereotype, had the bandanas, the jeans, the boots. We did country line dancing. They came out to gawk at the Ameri Americans, and then, bam, we hit them with the gospel. That was the strategy. And every morning we would go out, and we would canvas, and we would hand out invitations. Ah, come to the Festival Americano, and people would come, right, and be invited. And so we're doing that one morning, and I have kind of broken away from my group, and I'm walking next to that beautiful river in downtown San Sebastian, and I'm inviting people, and I'm handing out invites, and I see a young man sitting next to a tree, and I turn to him, and it kind of startles me because he's wearing a latex werewolf mask. And he's got gloves on that are their werewolf claw gloves. They've got talons and they've got, they've got fur on them. Every day. He's just sitting there with his fangs. He's just like, right? And it kind of spooked me. And I just, I kind of kept going, you know. I'm like, is this guy psychotic? What's going on? And, and so I kept walking down this path. And I come into contact with some of our team members. And I see Julie Bezor. She was on our team. She attends here. And I said, hey, how's it going? And she goes, great. And I said, did you uh, see uh, El Lobo back there? And she says, yeah, I really want to go back and tell him about Jesus. And I go, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and she's like, do you, do you want to go with me and tell him about Jesus? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> and inwardly, I'm just praying, God, don't let him bite me. You know, and so we go back and we get some euros because we figure he's probably homeless. If we give him money, maybe he'll talk to us. We sit down 
And uh, we're talking to him, find out his name is Michael or Miguel. And uh, he's talking to him the whole time. He's looking at us through these eye holes. And he's just shifty eyes, like through these. And I'm kind of creeped out, you know. And so we, we finally kind of inch our way toward the gospel. And I say, Michael, do you have a Bible? And he, sa he reaches into his backpack, pulls out a Bible. He's got a Bible. I said, wow, it's great. I said, have you ever read it? And he says, oh, yes. I said, wow. I go, Michael, what do you understand that book says that you must do in order to go to heaven? And he says, you must put your faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, here he is, this werewolf's telling me how to be saved. And, and I said, wow. I said, and have, have you ever done that? And he goes, he goes, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died on a cross for my sin. And I believe that he rose from the dead. And he took off his mask. He's this totally normal, clear-eyed, approachable-looking guy. Some might even say handsome. And what we had was a sheep in wolves' clothing. Isn't that crazy? And he wore the mask so that people wouldn't miss him. He's homeless and he was in need of help and he just thought that would get attention. Isn't that crazy? But you know what? We don't need to fear the false prophets who are obvious because in your notes, false prophets are not always obvious to us. They have learned to blend in, okay? They're not going to look like wolves. They don't wear a sandwich board sign that says false prophet. They don't have a megaphone going, I have a message that will send you to hell. Can I please have your attention? It's not going to be that easy. We have to spot them because they look like Christians. Jesus says, false prophets, wolves, ravenous wolves are going to be among you and they're going to be wearing the uniform of my children. And they know all the verses you know. They know all the songs that you know. They look appealing and approachable. And they say things that sound good at first. But inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. Now, the Christian, despite their slick trickery, the Christian should be able to sniff that out. And yet, often we do not. Many have infiltrated the church. Why is that? Why are they so hard to spot? I'm going to give you two reasons right here. Number one, because people are biblically and theologically illiterate. People are biblically and theologically illiterate, even within the church, even in Christian circles. This is actually an epidemic today. We don't read our Bibles. Or those of us who do, often we don't know how to interpret properly our Bibles, and therefore we don't have a grasp on doctrine and on theology. And when we don't know our Bibles, we don't know doctrine, we don't know theology, it's virtually impossible for us to identify a false teacher. And so we need to get into our Bible. And sometimes those of us who have not invested the time, have not learned how to study the Word, when others who have invested the time to study the Word start to point out false prophets, it makes those who haven't very uncomfortable. And we get a little unsettled by it. We're like, well, that sounds, sounds kind of intolerant. Because we, because of the ecumenical movement and all these churches seeking to come together and all these faiths trying to be unified, in order to be unified, they've kind of set doctrine aside and we've got this mindset of can't we all just get along? And the answer to that question is no. No. A lot of us can get along. We have minor disagreements, but when we have disagreements on key, essential, core doctrines within the Christian faith, we need to be intolerant of those views. You say, that, 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 that sounds really intolerant. It is. Because when it comes to false prophets, when it comes to false teaching, we need to be intolerant. 
Welcome to the narrow gate. Yes. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? When we say, can't we all just get along? That flies in the face of what Jesus just said. He said, beware. Beware. He's not going to tell us to beware of something if it's not dangerous. And so we tolerate wrong interpretations of Scripture because we don't know our Bible. You say, well, I'm not really into theology. Listen, you, whether you know it or not, are a theologian. You are a theologian. Everybody is a theologian. We all practice theology. You're either a good theologian or you're a not-so-good theologian. And maybe you're a downright bad one. But we all have a view of God. And we all practice that view of God. And if you're here today and you recognize, you know what? I could stand to know my Bible better. I could stand to get a grasp on some of these doctrinal issues. I want to encourage you to check out that September 22nd Precepts Conference that we're having here. It might be worth your time. Reasonably priced. You should check that out. All right? But one reason we don't see false prophets is because we don't know our Bibles. Number two, because people have developed an aversion to discernment. We've developed an aversion to discernment. There is a false and dangerous notion in the church today that, that somehow to draw a line in the sand to say this is truth and this is lies is somehow unchristian. And we just need to be tolerant. We just need to be accepting. And somehow that's what Jesus would want. Did you know that there's a new John 3.16? Well, that's not to say that if you turn to John 3.16 that it's going to read differently. I mean, John 3.16 once was the most quoted, most well-known verse in all the Bible. Not anymore. Now the most quoted verse is Matthew 7.1. Matthew 7.1. Now, that's not to say that everybody knows where, what Matthew 7.1 says. They don't know the address, but they know the verse. And all I have to do is get you started. I don't care who you are, where you came from, what circle you're in, whether you're surrounded by Christians or unbelievers. All I have to do is say the first three words. Do not judge. You all know it. Everybody knows it. And you're like, well, we just studied it two weeks ago, Pastor Scott. It's true, but it's the best known verse in the world. Everybody quotes this verse all the time. It's, it's the only verse some people have ever cared to memorize out of the Bible. And they quote it whenever anyone takes a position on a moral issue. And they have interpreted wrongly this verse to mean that under no circumstances are you ever to point out that something is wrong. Well, you know, uh, you're living with a person and you're not married to them. That, that's not right in the eyes of the Lord. Oh, now, don't judge, lest you be judged, right? Well, you know, marriage is between a man and a woman. Well, now, who are you to judge? You don't want to be judged, do you? You know, and Larry King says, now what about the Jews and the Muslims? They don't believe in Jesus. Are they going to go to hell? And a well-known preacher gets on that show and says, well, Larry, you know, I don't know. It's really not for me to judge. I'm not God. Hogwash. Do not judge does not mean that under no circumstances are we not to discern right from wrong. Let me ask you a question. Is it, any, is, is it interesting to you that in the same chapter where Jesus says, do not judge that you be not judged, which I believe and receive, it's a great verse, it's truth. 14 verses later, Jesus says, beware false prophets. Maybe it's just me. But if I'm supposed to beware something and I'm, 
by definition supposed to identify someone as being a false prophet? That that might involve judging? And it might involve discernment? Calling something out as wrong? You see, judgment is appropriate when it comes to doctrine. You're not to judge the condition of a person's soul. God knows the inside. You don't. But you can judge the content of what they're saying and teaching. And we are meant to do that. And how do we do that? Jesus says, verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered, uh, grapes gathered. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? I'm speaking in tongues up here. Uh, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. We have to examine the fruit. That's your responsibility. Look at the fruit of the false prophet. What is the bad fruit? What is the bad fruit of a false prophet? Two things in your notes. First of all, bad teaching. Bad teaching. What are they teaching? Is it right or wrong? Is it good or bad? How did, uh, how did the Old Testament saints recognize a false prophet? If you're so inclined, you could look at Deuteronomy 18 verse 20. And God, through Moses, tells Israel how to spot a false prophet. He said, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Whoa. Die. It sounds intolerant. Come on, God. In verse 21, but if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken they're asking, God, what is the word that you've not spoken? How do we know when a false word is coming from a, a, a prophet? And he says in verse 22, but when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass, does not come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Here's the test. Moses says, okay, here's the test. When a prophet says something, does what the prophet says is going to happen actually happen. If not, false prophet. There you go. If they prophesy, it doesn't happen, that's false prophet. Okay? Now, that's not our test anymore. We don't use that test anymore. Why not? Because we have something that the Old Testament saints didn't. The completed canon of Scripture. In Hebrews 1, verse 1, long ago and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers for the, through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. You see, we have the canon of scripture. The prophets are gone. Jesus was here and ascended. The apostles are no longer with us. Everything that we have in our Bible is complete. It is perfect. The canon is closed. God has spoken. There is nothing more that he needs to reveal to us. And so how do we know a false prophet? Our test is not, does what the prophets say is going to happen actually happen? And by the way, there are people who operate like that who say, uh, well, God says that this is going to happen on this date. Remember a few years ago, uh, Harold Camping came out and said, the world's going to end on this date. And I waited. And the day came, and the world didn't end. But Harold Camping did. He's gone now, right? World's still spinning. Did I need to wait for that day to arrive to know that he was teaching falsely? No, because my Bible says no one knows the hour, not even the angels in heaven, but only the Father. 
knows the hour of my coming. Okay? So my test is not, does what the prophet says is going to happen actually happen? My test and your test is, does what they say line up with Scripture? And that's why we need to know our Bibles. Oh, now you and I say things like, God spoke to me, right? Have you ever said that? I have. I heard the voice of God, right? God, God, God whispered something to, you've heard that, right? Now, when we say that, do we mean to say that our Bible is a three-ring binder? We take pages out, we put pages in. Do we mean to say that God told me brand new, fresh revelation, and I am now on par with Paul and Moses? Of course not. But there are some who mean precisely to say that. And you need to avoid such people. So if anybody's running around saying, Thus says the Lord, God told me to tell you, and this is brand new revelation, steer clear. That's a false teacher right there. And we need to be aware because they are ravenous wolves. He says, sounds so judgmental. Welcome to the narrow gate. Second fruit that we're looking for is bad living. Bad living. We got bad teaching. We got bad living. Turn to 2 Timothy 3. You need, to, you need to see this text here. This is important. Uh, Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, and he compares the false prophets that will arise in the last days to the, the two pagan sorcerers that opposed Moses. Okay? He says, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Now, when he says the last days, he's not talking about some far-flung future time. He's talking about the time in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Where are we? We're right in there. We're right in there. That means we live in, in the last days. You know that? And in the last days, false prophets will arise. And he says in verse 2, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, uh, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Ah, watch this. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Wolves in sheep's clothing. He says, avoid such people. Avoid them. Don't listen to them. Don't read them. Don't watch them. Don't write them a check. Stay away from them. Look at the lives of the people that are teaching in the Christian culture around the world. Your favorite whomever, right, that's teaching, what, what kind of life do they lead? That is the fruit that we need to consider. Bad teaching, bad living. We need to know. Are, have we seen bad living among teachers in the church? Absolutely we have. And they can start out rather innocuously. They can start out an evangelical, mainstream, accepted, and then they go off the deep end, right? And they start taking advantage of people, and they start becoming about money, and they become about uh, uh, their own personal pleasure. That's a sign. That's a fruit that we need to be watchful of. And Paul compares them to Janus and Jambres who opposed Moses. He says, these are men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. That's intolerant language right there. So these are the two distinctions, their life and their teaching. And if you want to know what the standard for their life is, you should go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus lays it out for us. This is what true faith looks like. This is what true giving looks like. This is what true prayer and true fasting looks like. 
And we can examine them according to that standard. So you can pinpoint, you can identify a false prophet. But you know what? None of that matters if we're not willing to do something about it. If we're not willing to do something about it. Because in your notes, false prophets must be dealt with. They must be dealt with. Paul goes on. If you're still in 2 Timothy, look at verse 14. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. What's he talking about? Talking about the Bible, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for, oh, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. What's Paul telling Timothy? He's saying the means that you need to identify and deal with false prophets is called Scripture. It's called the Word of God. It's sitting right there in your hands. And in your notes, we must test everything by the scriptures. I want you to test me by the scriptures. As I'm preaching, don't just sit there and nod your head and say amen. You check me. You check me. When Jeremy's up here, when Chad's up here, David, whomever, you check us by the word of God. Because guess what? We're fallible. That book's not. It's perfect. This is necessary. Paul was checked. Okay, he preached in Berea. He said the noble Jews there every day, they examined the scriptures to see if these things were so. Okay, so here's Paul, greatest evangelist of all time. He's taught all over the place. He's performed miracles. If anybody had the authority of God on his life, it's Paul. And yet here's these Berean Jews. Yep, 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 sounds right. And that is right for them to do. And it's right for you to do. I tell Ichthus every year, our young adults ministry, I say, I'm going to be teaching a lot of stuff. You're going to be taking a lot of notes. But you call me out. If I go astray, you call me out. You bring me the chapter verse. You show me. You check me. 1 John 4, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. How are you going to test the spirits? By the word of God. Now, there is a movement within the church today. There are Christians who are trying to undermine the authority of Scripture. And they're trying to say that, well, you know, the Bible is not really inspired. When we say it's inspired, that means that, that it, you know, it encourages us, it motivates us. That's not really meaning to say that God wrote it. It's a man-made document, and it's clearly written by men who lived in very specific cultures at different times throughout history, and they're undermining the authority, and they are completely casting aside the doctrine of inspiration. These are dangerous people because they're removing the standard. What is your standard? if not the word of God. Is it your own intellect? That's not going to work. You are a fallen creation. God gave us this so that we could recognize truth from untruth, and this is the only roadmap that we have for that. So when we are able to test by the scriptures, then in your notes, we must refute those who contradict sound teaching. We have to refute them. Does that make you a little nervous? It's, the it's my job description to do this as a pastor. I have to do this or I'm not doing my job. Uh, one of the pastoral epistles, Titus, 
tells the requirements of a pastor. This is what is required of you. And in Titus 1.9 it says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. I have to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. You say, that sounds pretty judgmental right there. Hey, that's the job. And if I'm not doing it, I'm not doing my job. Now, if I'm going to refute unsound doctrine, does that mean that I have to be mean and nasty? Sometimes. Sometimes. Not normally. But let me ask you a question. If you're a sheep, do you want your shepherd, when he sees fully aware of wolves coming in, snatching the sheep, devouring the sheep, you expect your shepherd to kind of just, hi, Mr. Wolf, listen, hi, look, ah, I'm Scott. Look, I uh, just want you to know, I, I couldn't help but notice, you know, eating my sheep and uh, just uh, want to let you know that I, I recognize that that is part of your interpretation of your worldview. And I just want you to know, I completely respect that. And I'll be over there praying for you. All right. God bless. You know, no. What does a shepherd do when he sees a wolf? He gets a big honking stick. And he chases the wolf off, right? Why? So they don't eat the sheep. And by the way, that shepherd's going to call out to his other shepherds in the countryside and say, Wolf! There's a wolf! Guard your sheep! And we don't have any problem calling a wolf a wolf. Because they're dangerous. Jesus is the one who called him a wolf, not me. That's my job. And I accept that. What about you? Is that your job? All right, look, I have no problem saying that lay people can and should engage in discernment and in calling things out. Absolutely do. However, let me make a disclaimer right here, and I want everybody to listen to me very carefully, okay? Today, we have some very zealous brothers and sisters in the body who are very passionate about uh, uh, discernment and they are very protective of their family in Christ and they don't want anybody to lead them astray and so they've taken it upon themselves to call out things that they believe is heretical. However, in the age of social media, we have many self-appointed prophets with blogs and podcasts who have felt the pressure on a weekly basis to come up with a target of the week. And so they find someone that they disagree with on any issue, and they proceed to label that person, a, they label as a heretic or a false prophet or false teacher, uh, people in the Christian community who are undeserving of those terms. And they use words like heresy and heretic, and they have no idea what they mean. Now, what is heresy? Heresy is anything that runs counter to the core essentials of the Christian faith. Heresy is not when somebody teaches something that you just happen to disagree with. Okay? I have friends that believe that you should baptize babies. I, I don't believe that. I think they're dead wrong. I don't call them heretics. Okay? I don't call them false prophets. I have people who think they're Christians, but they happen to believe that the earth is billions of years old. I disagree. I don't call them a false prophet. Okay? What is here? It's, it's, it's counter to the core essentials of the Christian faith. What are the core essentials of the Christian faith? I have put them in your bulletin. I just want to run over these really 
quick, okay, so that you understand that these are the top 10. These are the important ones right here. Number one, the inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility of the Bible. Okay? That is to say that the Bible is not written by man. It is written by God through man. And because it reflects its perfect author, it is perfect. Without error, it cannot err. And it's profitable, as 2 Timothy said, for doctrine, for approval, for correction, for training in righteousness, all of that. Okay? Very important that we believe in that. Number two, the Trinity. God is triune. He is three in one. He is Father, Son, Spirit. All three are God. All three are unique and yet unified perfectly. God is one, but he is three in one. And that speaks to the deity of Christ, the deity of the Holy Spirit. Number three, the creation of all things by God. You and I as human beings are not the product of chance nor the product of evolution. We are designed by a creator who knew us before we were knit together in our mother's womb. And he created this earth, this universe, and everything in it. Number four, the sinfulness of man. Everything was created perfect, including man. And yet, though we were perfect, we disobeyed God. We fell in the garden with Adam as the head of our race. And we are now fallen. We are now corrupt. We have a sin nature and we are in desperate need of redemption. We have a sinful state. Number five, the virgin birth and the incarnation of Christ. Because man fell into sin, God enacted a plan whereby he sent his son who was God, and that is Jesus Christ. He was born of a virgin, Mary, and the reason he was born of a virgin is so that no one could dispute his divine origin nor say that he had a sin nature. And this incarnation was literally God becoming flesh. It was the entrance of God into the physical world. Number six, Christ's deity, humanity. And sinlessness related to the incarnation is the fact that Jesus Christ was 100% man and simultaneously 100% God. And he lived a perfect life as no one else ever did. Number seven, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as an atonement for sin. Upon living a sinless life, he went to Golgotha where he was crucified as a substitute for you and I. He paid the price on that cross as the spotless, sinless Lamb of God as an atonement for our sin. And then number eight, the bodily resurrection of Christ and his ascension to God's right hand. Jesus Christ did not stay dead. He rose again. He did not survive the crucifixion. He literally died, but he literally rose, not figuratively, not symbolically, not spiritually, but physically. And he also ascended physically to heaven where he now operates as our high priest. Number nine, salvation by grace through faith in Christ, not Works When you believe in what Jesus did on the cross, you believe in his work for you, that he died in your place, you receive that as a free gift. You believe that God raised him from the dead. And you say, I accept that. I'm not going to earn that. I cannot earn the favor of God. It is free, but I must believe in it and receive it. Then you are saved. And number 10, Christ's return in judgment and the reality of eternal punishment. Jesus one day will return just as he said he would when he does. He is coming to judge the quick and the dead and the sons of men and those who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ will be contemned to an eternity without Christ. Eternal punishment and that's the reality of hell. That's your top ten. Now if anybody is undermining any of that, if anybody is taken away from any of that, if anybody is adding to any of that, they're a false teacher. They're a false prophet. But if they are addressing an issue that is not included in those, don't you go calling them a heretic. Don't call them a false prophet. Okay? 
You don't have to agree with them. You can point out that they're wrong on this particular issue. But we deal with false prophets because it is they who undermine doctrine that is essential. What makes that doctrine essential? Without it, the Christian faith falls apart. Okay? The Christian faith doesn't fall apart on every issue, but those, it does. And most of those deal directly with the gospel and salvation. And so it's very important. Now, why is this important? I'm going to give you two final things here. Why, why it's important to deal with false prophets. In your notes, false teaching ensnares believers and dooms unbelievers. Now, obviously, if somebody's not saved and they sit under false teaching and they believe a false gospel, they're going to go to hell, okay? What about the believer? What about the believer? You say, if I'm a Christian and I, I buy into some things that a false teacher is saying, am I going to lose my salvation? Well, first of all, if you are an authentic believer in Jesus Christ, you have received, and it, you meant it, and he lives in your heart. He does not leave you. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption, okay? So first of all, I don't believe that you're going to deny him if you're authentically saved. I don't believe that's ever going to happen. However, does that mean that you are under no threat from false teachers? Does that mean that you can just listen to whoever you want without any thought for it because I'm saved? Listen, they're still dangerous. And a false teacher, though they may not take a narrow, uh, narrow gate, hard road living Christian and turn them into a wide gate, easy road unbeliever, they can turn your life upside down sometimes for years. And they can have you as confused as a termite in a yo-yo, as my daddy used to say. And you need to be delivered from that thinking. And while you are deceived and confused by the teaching of a false prophet, you may not lose your salvation, but you will be rendered ineffective as it pertains to the faith. Secondly, false teaching a false message produces a false righteousness. If you believe a false gospel, you will go to hell. This is the words of Christ in verse 21 of our text in Matthew 7. He says, not everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Just because you call yourself a Christian, just because you operate in Christian circles, doesn't mean... You're going to heaven. He says, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? He says, I'm going to say to them, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Not I used to know you. I never knew you. And then these horrible words to hear. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Listen, you can do a lot of good things. You can do a lot of Christian things, a lot of churchy things. But if you have bought into anything other than the gospel, if you have believed wrongly about the gospel, all your good work is for nothing. It's a false righteousness. He'll say, I never knew you. The message matters. What you believe matters. 
Final question for you. Is your eternity secure by knowing the true Jesus? Would you bow with me? Close your eyes. Maybe you're here tonight, this morning, and you, you recognize, I have believed wrongly. I've bought in to a gospel that is something other than the grace alone, by faith alone, made available by Christ alone, because of the cross. I've added to that. I've taken away from that. Maybe you never even thought about this before. Do you know you can settle this today? And you need to. And if that's you, I want you to pray with me right now. Something along these lines. In your heart. Dear Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. And I am recognizing that you are God. And that you died for me in my place on the cross. And that God raised you from the dead. But that your sacrifice offers me a free gift of grace. And I can't earn that gift. It is a gift. And I want to receive it freely from you right now. So that I can spend eternity with you. I want to commit my life to you today. Will you be my savior? If that's you, if you've just prayed that prayer and you meant it, and it's the first time you've ever prayed that prayer, I want you to slip your hand up right now. Would you just slip your hand up if you prayed that prayer for the very first time? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone in this room who has received the message of the gospel today. Lord, I pray for any in this room who has bought in to teaching that is destructive, that is false, that is heretical. God, would you help us to be alert? Would you help us to be watchful? And would you help us to watch for your coming? And we give you the glory and the praise and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen.